House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, uh, joining us, as we uh, said earlier, we've got Matthew Pauly. He's um, here to talk to us about uh, MK Ultra Mind Control and his book, Murder of Time. Uh, thank you for taking some time um, to discuss this. Well, thank you very much, Warren. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, it's uh, my pleasure. Um, well, let's start out with some of the basics, because some people listening probably won't know what MK Ultra Mind Control is. So uh, what's, what's the history, and what kind of uh, description can you give to what it is? Sure. Well, uh, just a very brief history. Uh, the first person, I think, to be named is Dr. Yosef Mengele. Yeah. Mengele. Mengele. And he, he was a very, very sick, saddest uh, mind control scientist in the Nazi uh, concentration camps who did experiments on usually twin Jewish children. Uh, and he was very interested in doing mind control. So he would do things like torture these children and torture them until they dissociated, which means their dominant personality would go to sleep. Then he would use hypnosis and try and, you know, create alters, to try and create sort of subpersonalities, try and program them to do things. Uh, he was a very sick man, and uh, he did horrible crimes against humanity. Uh, then what happened is in uh, 1945, the CIA just after the war, it had a, a Project Paperclip, it was called, where uh, thousands of Nazi mind control rocket scientists and also mind control, Nazi mind control scientists were resettled into the, into the United States. And they were given jobs uh, in CIA, the military, research hospitals, academe. This is, by the way, documented in declassified CIA, CIA documents. Uh, WantToKnow.info is the most credible source I've found, and they have a mind control topic there. Um, also, then, in the, there was this this project was started, this MK Ultra, which was really an umbrella project. Uh, had about 150 subprojects, and one of them was called Subproject 68, uh, or Artichoke, and that occurred uh, in in Canada, in uh, Montreal, by a Dr. Ewan Cameron, who was a Scot. Scottish guy, American, who came up every week he would come up from New York to, to Montreal. And he was a, a doctor, and he did this research on, on Canadians, and these were unsuspecting, unwilling. They had no idea what was being done to them. Uh, young people, children, adults, and they did horrific uh, mind control experiments. He called it psychic driving. And the first thing he would do was give them overcurrent uh, electroshock, a much higher voltage amperage than is normal, and not just one dose, but like four or five doses in a day, and do that every day for like three weeks. And the amount of, you know, damage in terms of, you know, lost brain cells would be so significant. Uh, the idea is he called it uh, depatterning, where he would try and erase their existing personality. Then he would put them to sleep chemically, and while they were chemically asleep, there would be a speaker under their pillow playing messages, um, and these were just any old arbitrary messages. Uh, one was telling a guy, you killed your mother, 
And this was played for like 500,000 times while you're asleep, chemically asleep for like three weeks to a month. So people would come out of that so messed up that they were basically disabled for life. Uh, and uh, obviously some died. We know at least a dozen died. And thousands were, were affected and most were disabled. And when it, when it got, went public because he foolishly uh, chose um, the wife of a politician uh, who was in the parliament as one of his subjects, and so it went public, and, you know, he was shut down, and the thing is, he was being funded by the CIA, as well as by the Canadian government, and uh, so that was the end of that. Uh, the, then the hospital records were destroyed, so the people couldn't get any compensation. There was a handful that sued the government, or sued the CIA, in around 1980, and uh, only about a dozen or so got compensation of about 100000 each, which is not very much, considering you've been disabled for life. Right, right. And, and so did this, now, the CIA didn't stop this in, in the 70s then, and after the suing of the 80s, they just kept it going, you think? Well, um, what happened in, there was a, uh, a U.S. Uh, Senate, uh, it was called the Church Committee Hearings, um, and in 1977, they claimed, uh, the CIA claimed that, look, in these hearings, under oath, oh, well, this is all in the past. We're not doing this anymore. We stopped in, you know, oh, a long time ago. And so that was the, for the public, you know, that, that, that this, this was not happening anymore. Uh, we know that's not actually, that's, that's not true. That's false. Uh, the former deputy director of the CIA, Victor Marchetti, came out publicly and stated that that was a cover story. Those were his words. And you got to remember, this is somebody who's a former deputy director. Why would he be bad-mouthing his, his employer, uh, you know, former employer like that? And the only reason he would do that is if he really cared about democracy. Um, and then we have also recently, um, in the last uh, 15 years, there's people like myself, uh, but they're, they're much more um, uh, pioneers in this than I was, people like Kathy O'Brien, uh, Kathleen Sullivan, um, there's a, a whole handful of people who've written books and about their experience in the program. On the U.S. side, their experience in the program is more on the production side. In other words, these people have been turned into sleepers uh, and create distinct uh, subpersonalities, usually for women, uh, beta sex slave, and then they're used to service very high-profile politicians and, you know, mobsters. Um, and it's all very uh, disturbing what was done to them, just hor horrific what was done to them. And also, there's a, you know, an alpha, uh, beta sex slave thing. There's also an alpha personality, which is super aggressive, and they use that to kill people. Um, so the people that have been, you know, experimented upon uh, since, you know, the, the program officially closed have, have gone through horrors beyond belief, uh, and I'm one of those people. Um, I just wanted to mention that, uh, that, that this is documented at wantsknow.info, and this site is very credible. The, the guy who, uh, first of all, there's a dozen people sort of uh, that are involved in this site that are all very established journalists, uh, and also the guy who's running it, Fred Burks, is the former um, head interpreter at the State Department, and he personally interpreted for um, Clinton, uh, Bush, and even Dick Cheney, um, and so he got out of that, 
and decided that he wanted to do some good in the world. <laughs> so he started this site, and the, all the declassified CIA documents are there, excellent written summaries, uh, mainstream media coverage of this topic. Anyway, that's wanttoknow.info, and it's the mind control subtopic. So that's my brief summary. Okay, now, so MK Alter, what does it stand for? It's uh, meant to be, um, my understanding is that the MK is the Latin Germanic uh, mental control. And so since we got those uh, several thousand mind control scientists in 1945, there was a very heavy German, specifically Nazi German, influence. And so MK is thought to be the, from that Latin Germanic prefix, mental control. And, and how did... Um the U.S. get the ability to start um, experimenting on people from another country, such as Canada. I know, I know they were close, especially during the war of the 40s, um, but was there some sort of um, agreement or something they had? Right. Well, um, for 10 years, 10 and a half years now, I've been a non-consensual research subject, and I have noticed that uh, there's uh, the Canadian paramilitary uh, what we call the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, have been actually uh, involved in three of the events. There's been around five or seven events now. And the RCMP has been involved from the very start. And the only way that they could be involved is if there was an agreement. Now, back in, uh, I guess it was about 1940, um, the Bavin, a guy named Bavin, was the head of the RCMP, and he was approached... And these are secret letters that have since come to light, and they're, they're published. Um, he was approached by uh, Mr. Estabrooks of Colgate College in New York, who was into hypnosis and was saying, look, I want to, you know, uh, make some hypnotic program spies. Just give me access to a hospital or a jail for a week, and I'll work on some people, and we can do it. And the RCMP guy, Bavin, thought about it. They had some back-and-forth uh, letters and then decided... No, I don't think we should proceed with this at this time. It would be too risky. Uh, so that was in 1940. Now, we know that that was secret. Those discussions were secret. We only find out about them 60 years later. Uh, we know that from my experience, uh, I have documented, and, and I mean, it's, it's true. What's happened to me, that the, the RCMP were involved from the 2000, in the 2005 event, the 2007 event, and also in the May 2015 event. Uh, so, therefore, it can be no question that the RCMP has a Cold War agreement sometime in the Cold War, because that's when they were justifying this human experimentation, saying, oh, well, we've got this enemy that's going to take over the world, this communism, we've got to, you know, sacrifice people to, in the name of freedom, and th these compromised decisions were made. And it's 2016 now, and they still seem to be operating on this agreement, thinking that this is acceptable behavior. Uh, when, of course, it's, it's, these are crimes against humanity. Uh, so there must exist an agreement between the, the two. So when did this program start in your life? Like, where did it get into you? Um, and what was the first, I guess, event or um, happening? Okay, well, before answering that question, if you don't mind, yep. just want to give this 30 seconds on, on just who I am. Um, so... Uh, I, I'm a, a, a Canadian uh, born in Toronto to American parents. 
my father was a cultural anthropologist, a professor, and uh, he was sort of a, a little bit on the radical side, uh, but was always, you know, for nonviolence and peace and everything, just very critical of government. Um, and I grew up in that environment, and I uh, joined the, what we call Katimovic up here, which is like the U.S. Peace Corps. And I worked for a dollar a day doing physical labor, helping communities for nine months. And then I went to university, and I uh, got a degree in sociology and computer studies, entered the workforce immediately here in Toronto, and worked in the computer field ever since uh, for, as a programmer, and all the way up, you know, to systems analyst and eventually to chief scientist of a publicly traded company that had most of my intellectual property. Uh, and I've been consulting to Fortune 500. And I've been the fifth year right now of my, uh, the, the board of my neighborhood community association trying to make the neighborhood uh, better, trying to have it more accessible to, you know, low-income housing people and trying to make sure that we have more trees and we have more moderation of the development that's going on. Um, but anyway, uh, I am a family man. I have a house here. I had a dog who died as a result of one of these experiments. Um, and I just got selected. And there, there, so getting to your point, you know, when did this start? In November of 2005, specifically on the, on or about the 22nd, I was, uh, coerced into a five-ton military van uh, on um, Montgomery Avenue, which is um, the street that I live on, uh, which is, and, and this was just off of Young Street. Young Street was once the world's longest street. Uh, it's, it splits Toronto north-south, right going north from Lake Ontario. And I'm literally three blocks from the geographic center in a very nice uh, neighborhood uh, that has the lowest rate of violent crime. And I was coerced into this van, and they approached me on the street. And the, uh, there was two guys, and uh, it was 9.30 at night, and I was walking north on the uh, west side. And I got to Hallandale, and just before I got to the corner of Hallandale, two guys approached me. One had his five foot eleven, short blonde hair, blue eyes, slim build, with an American accent. And another guy was uh, six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds, uh, dark hair, big burly mustache, and a slight Quebecois French accent. And the, the American says, "Are you Matthew?" I said, "Yeah, Matthew Polly." I said, "Yeah." Well, listen, Matthew, uh, we just me and my friend here are peace officers, and uh, we just want to know why you have three bottles of hydrogen peroxide in your basement. I said, "Well, well okay, sure. I'll tell you the, the truth. I, I I have them because I I was using it as a disinfectant." because I was growing some mushrooms because my wife suffers from migraine headaches. She wasn't responding to uh, normal pharmacology, uh, and she's very suffering. And I read that Central American Indians have a cure for this, which is a certain mushroom. And I was using this stuff as a disinfectant. They said, okay, do you have any more, uh, the Canadian said. And, and, and then I said, no. He said, well, why not? And the American jumped. He said, never mind, it's not important. Look, Matthew... We just have to ask you a few more questions about this. We have a van just over here. It's really cold outside. Why don't you just come with us for a few minutes? And they proceeded to um, make me walk in front of them, and uh, they guided me to cross the post office parking lot, which is, again, on Young Street uh, between uh, Hellendale and Montgomery. So we're walking south to north. I stopped at the diagonal boom that stops the cars from coming in. It had, like, um, you know, yellow and black 
stripes on it. And I and they said, no, never mind. Just go ahead, go ahead, go around it. So I went around it, and um, there was no, three orange sodium lights normally in that parking lot. There they were they were off. They were the place was black, and once we got about midway through, and this is like empty postal vans on each side, it's a really dark. I started to get a little nervous, and I, I stopped. And that's when the, the huge guy says to me, keep walking, in a loud voice. And I was, you know, frightened and intimidated, and I decided, okay, I'll keep walking. And as we came to the other end of the parking lot, there was this five-ton monocolor uh, armored vehicle which would look like approximately like a Brinks truck, an armored uh, vehicle with bulletproof windows. And there was a window, uh, door open in the back. A guy was holding it open from the inside, said, Hi, Matthew, come on in. And there was a guy, an officer, on the left side, on the right side, and also on the far north side, you know, standing there uh, with their legs sort of spread apart and their you know, hands on their hips, making it very clear that I could not go that way. <laughs> so, and two guys behind me. Uh, so I knew I was in trouble. And uh, I got in. And the doorman said, watch your head. And uh, he closed the door. And uh, I sat down. It was all dark. And it was empty. And the other officers were outside. And one by one, they came in. Uh, and uh, this was an interrogation, uh, but not just a regular interrogation. This was an anti-terrorist training exercise, and it was documented on the Department of National Defense in Canada on their website in 2006. It was called Joint Control Unified Command 2005. Uh, the actors were, the American was Joint Task Force, who, by the way, run Guantanamo Bay, and Joint Task Force 2, the Canadian Special Forces, um, and they were being trained. So we had the guy I call Red, because he had a red complexion, um, was being trained by um, Mitch, who was the guy with blonde hair, on how to do coercive, what they call enhanced interrogation techniques. The actual description of the exercise was group infiltration and enhanced interrogation techniques. But that was actually not telling the whole truth, because the last, of the three and a half hours I was in that van, the last hour and a half were mind control training. It was the American teaching the Canadian how to do MK Ultra Monarch torture trauma uh, dissociation hypnosis based mind control, and it was the most brutal thing I'd ever been through in my life. So now, first of all, were they were they treating you like a terrorist, and and why do you think they were doing that? Um. Yes, well, I mean, I should say that this didn't just happen out of the blue. Uh, I actually had some expectation that I might be interrogated. And, and the reason is, um, I'm a computer programmer, and I was working across from Pearson International Airport in Toronto. The second day of work for me was August 2nd of 2005 at a software company, and we were on the fourth floor, which is as high as the building would go because we're in the cone of airspace around an airport where you can't build tall buildings. We were the last building before the runway. So we had a beautiful view of the runway. And I was in the, the fourth floor, actually the third floor kitchen, getting a coffee on my second day. And I was told earlier there was no planes landing because it was such brutal weather, uh, really, really rainy and really, really windy and dark. And there was this white 
bloated airframe coming across from right to left. And that would be from east to west. And uh, I said, oh, well, uh, what's this about? And they said, oh, he shouldn't be landing. And this plane, I witnessed on my first day that all the planes touched down by midpoint on the runway. This plane was still 50 feet above the runway at the midpoint. And when it finally did land, towards the end of, you know, beyond where it should have landed, it had 150-foot um, rooster tails of water coming from the wheels because it was hydroplaning because there was so much water on that runway. And that was Air France 358. It was a, um, Airbus A310, and it crashed in Toronto. They called it an overshoot, but the plane was completely destroyed. So um, and then from our perspective, watching this, it looked like they all died because basically this plane careened out of control. It was going about 100 miles an hour when it reached the end of the tarmac. It then knocked over a light stand, like a 9 or 10 foot uh, light stand, uh, and then it just proceeded to go across this bumpy field of grass that was like not like a golf course grass, but like really bunched up bumpy grass. And it just bumped along that field for another couple hundred meters, and then it just disappeared into a gully or a ravine. And then within 30 seconds, smoke started rising. And the smoke was white smoke at first, and then it turned to thick black smoke. And from our perspective, it looked like really bad. And we, I was, uh, I put my arms on the, the kitchen sink, and I just started to put my, brace myself and take deep breaths because I was starting to hyperventilate. Because, you know, when you witness what looks like hundreds of people dying, um, it, it really, um, it causes what's called psychological trauma. That is the nature of how post-traumatic stress disorder is induced, is if you see threats to the life uh, of somebody around you uh, or yourself. And seeing, you know, a couple hundred people in an aircraft that looks like it's, you know, game over for those people. That's enough to do it for some of us. Um, anyway, and I fled the kitchen and I ran down the stairwell, uh, the four floors stairwell to get some fresh air. And on the way down the stairwell, I had sort of a vision almost of all these people dying and burning up. And I thought to myself, it doesn't matter if I'm Christian or Buddhist, you know, I, 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 I'm in trouble here because I denied their deaths. Because I actually argued with the programmers at first when they were pointing to this plane saying he's not going to stop. And they were young people. And I've been in the business a long time. I'm a little older for a programmer. And I thought, but he's getting on what they're talking about. It. I said, come on, you guys, listen, you know, there's got to be another runway down at the end there. And I put my nose to the glass and I looked and there wasn't a runway. And anyway, I was, I was running down that stair when I was blaming myself for, for arguing with these guys. And, and all these people are probably dying. And so I had this real horror, you know. And so when I got out that stairwell and I stepped out into the grass, something had happened to me in that stairwell. And uh, within hours, I had forgotten the whole thing. In other words, when a person dissociates, uh, their dominant personality goes to sleep and they record everything in high definition, but they're not there. It's like a child is there. And when you come back to normal, you have no recollection of that period of time. And that's what happened. I had no memory of the aircraft, uh, air crash, uh, you know, the next day. And that's a very bad thing. Um, then two and a half weeks later, I'm, I'm getting up to the reason of why I was chosen. So two and a half weeks later in Toronto, August 19th, 2005, 
we had a tornado evacuation, uh, which is very unusual. Hmm. Uh, what happened was in Fergus, Ontario, a, 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 a twister, you know, t- touchdown, did a lot of destruction. It was heading for Toronto, the most populous city in, in Canada. They had this, this evacuation. And my team, and I'm only two and a half weeks on the job at this point, you know, is kind of running around the Environment Canada website trying to figure out what to do. Um, finally, at the very late point in the whole game, they said, you know, we, we, should, we should evacuate. And this was the version 16. This is what we called this team. There's about 13 of us. And the, I argued with the team leader. I said, look, you know, if there's a threat to the whole building here, we should be concerned about everybody, not just our team. We should be getting everybody out. And he argued, he was panicked at this point. He said, look, you know, you, you don't understand. You know, we've already talked to them. Uh, you know, you're on your own. Just say you're on your own. And I said, okay, fine. I'm on my own. And uh, so I stayed behind with one other guy. And, uh, and, and there was, of course, other teams of people, but they weren't in the northwest corner or, or northeast corner of the building as we were. And so we were facing the tornado that was coming at us. And it was like the streetlights were out outside. Uh, were on outside, even though it was like, you know, middle of the afternoon. And they were on because it was so black. And then what happened was someone, the last person going for the stairwell to go to the basement said, oh, my God, it's coming, it's coming. And then they ran from the window and they left. And what happened was it was like a whirly mop in the car wash covering the windshield, except this was the windows of an office building covered with leaves and garbage and grass and it was just covering the windows. And then I heard this, you know, sound as the air was being sucked through the window vents just below the windows to equalize the pressure. Uh, and then we heard these rocks hitting the windows. It sounded like gunshots. And that was like really, really bad because, you know, of course, that's how you get injured in a tornado is by flying debris. And so when it looks like the windows are going to break, you know, you've got trouble. So both me and the other guy who stayed behind uh, jumped onto the floor, like literally got out of our office chairs and it hit the floor at the same half second. And we were under our desks. And we were under there for like 45 minutes. And what happened was I was there and looking up and the bottom of the desk is beige. The sides are beige. The floor is beige. And no matter which way I move, I can't feel like I'm safe because at any moment, you know, the windows are going to bust in. And this tornado is going to, you know, rip everything apart. And so I went into shock. And uh, so after about 45 minutes of being in shock, somebody uh, tried to come and help me, which is very nice of them. They were a hero. And they tried to lead me out from under my desk. They tried to get me down to the basement. The problem was they tried to take me down to that same stairwell where I had seen the plane, you know, the plane crash and I had the vision afterwards of all these people dying. And I wouldn't go. Because I, to me, that stairwell was death. And when, when, I was, when you're in severe shock, you become very irrational. Uh, and then he escalated. Once I came back to my desk, he, he came and got me again. This time, he had the, uh, his daughter, who also worked there, uh, wedge open the door. And he put his arm around my waist and tried to thrust me through that door. And, of course, this is something you should never do to someone who's in shock, is to physically force them. Because, you know, they're unpredictable. And I, who am you know, a nonviolent person, in that moment thought that he was trying to kill me because that stairwell equaled death in my mind. And I, you know, I pushed him, I mean, really hard. I grabbed him by lapels and I kind of threw him back. And I didn't 
intend for this, but he, he, you know, he was going back and towards the stairs, and he fell on the stairs, thank God, he grabbed the right handrail with his right arm, so the left handrail with his right arm, twisted his arm, but, you know, avoided falling down the stairs for all intents and purposes, but because I had been violent, he sat at the top of the stairs with me, and he tried to talk me down, and I wouldn't go, and they sealed up, I uh, got his daughter to seal up the other doors, and to try and talk me down, and eventually, my condition was so bad, uh, one, eye, one pupil was blown, super dilated, the other one was really small, um, and my vision had gone, I only could see in the edges, the middle was black, and I was dying of shock, and then they called the team from the basement, who were all Chinese, and they know, uh, Chinese folks know how to get people out of shock, which is a rapid massage with about, you know, ten pairs of hands, and they forced me to lie on the ground, and I was in such bad shape that I was resisting. And one of them said, you know, I've seen this before, because uh, she was a former nurse. She said, the way he's resisting right now and everything, he's being psychotic, you know, we've got to ask him some questions after. And Gary said, Gary was the guy who had led me through the door, oh, I'll take care of that. Sure enough, when they got me mostly out of shock, I'd say three-quarters out of shock, I was still in mild shock. He got his 200-pound nephew to come to the airport uh, software company, and they took me to a darkened room on another floor, and he proceeded to interrogate me. Now, it turns out that this guy, Gary, the hero, uh, was from World, in World War II. He was a, a veteran, um, and he, he was the guy who was uh, in Devil's Brigade, uh, and that's a multi-nation special ops force that were fighting the Germans, and they got the name Devil's Brigade because the Germans were so afraid of these guys because they were special ops and they were really good. Um, and they were, you know, trying to scare the Germans a lot, and the Germans called them the Black Devils, because their faces would be painted black when they did their operations. So they took on the name, the Devil's Brigade. I asked him what he did, you know, when he, I first met him two and a half weeks earlier. He said, oh, I used to blow up bridges and stuff like that. And I said, wow, I said, you know, that's great, you know, thank you so much for your service. And so I felt horrible that I had pushed this man. Uh, he's a war hero, and... I mean, but it wasn't me that did it. It was a person that was, you know, basically not there. I was so badly in shock, and I was dying. But anyway, I still felt really bad. And so when he's interrogating me, his questions were, have you ever thought of harming yourself or harming other people? And I'm thinking to myself, in this still in mild shock, I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to be charged with assault, and you cannot be a programmer in high-security environments with a criminal record. So I thought to myself, that's it, I'm going to lose my career here. I'm going to charge with this law. I better do something here. I better give him something. And I knew what he wanted, right? He wanted something to make me sound like threatening. Somehow I could be a problem. Um, and I thought I'd distract him. So he asked, when he asked, have you ever thought of uh, harming other people, I related a conversation that I'd had 10 years earlier, uh, but not entirely accurately, uh, with another programmer friend as we were lamenting uh, a neoconservative politician who had done a horrible, horrible things that, that resulted in people's deaths. Um, and as a result, um, I made it sound like me and my friend had been sort of conspiring and planning to do something to this guy. Uh, and I made it, I really talked it up, and I just, it was stupid that I did that. I totally admit, you know. Uh, and the thing is, when I, when I did that, I was marked right there as a potential terrorist. And he called me. What happened is, of course, the next couple of days, I ended up going home and not able to work because I have post-traumatic stress disorder. 
and uh, I'm at home, and I get a call in October. So this was August 19th, 2005. I get a call in October, and it's Matthew. Uh, this is uh, Gary calling. He said, yeah, yeah, hi, Gary. And he said, look, uh, I'm just wondering, have you been interrogated yet? And I said, uh, interrogated? By whom? He said, well, by the authorities. I said, uh, no. He said, oh, those guys, jeez. Oh, okay, uh, bye, Matthew, and click. So that was in October. I said, I knew something was going to happen. Um, and sure enough, about two and a half weeks later, uh, I had a, a gas company inspector, or purportedly a gas company inspector, show up at my door saying I was uh, named Jerry, stitched in his overalls, and saying, look, I'm from the gas company, and I'm a contractor, I work for them. We have this energy conservation program, the TAPS program. I just want to have a look in your furnace room, and I'm going to, like, turn down the, uh, uh, the temperature in your hot water tank, save you some money, and I'm going to give you some aerators for your faucets to reduce your consumption of hot water. It's a free program. And I, you know, said, okay, great, you know, and uh, so I let him in. And once he got into my furnace room, he uh, said, listen, could you go upstairs and turn the bathtub uh, on full hot water? And I'll, I said, well, we have a bathtub down here because we have a one uh, basement uh, bathroom. And he was very disappointed. He said, you, you have a bathtub down here? And, and I said, yeah. So I knew right away my antenna went up at that point. Why does this guy want to be alone in my furnace room? But I played along because I was feeling kind of, you know, threatened a little bit at this point, and I thought, just better play along with this guy, get him out of my house. Anyway, I turned on the hot water, and for about three or four minutes, give him some time alone, and then I turned it, uh, uh, turned it off after having it on for three or four minutes. I go back to the furnace room, and he's quickly fixing up uh, what he's doing. He's putting a sticker on the hot water tank, says TAPS program. He's putting um, a foam piece of insulation on the hot water uh, pipe going out. And he said, great, you know, we're all done here, and, uh, and he's, but he's acting real nervous. And then he takes me upstairs to the breakfast uh, uh, countertop over here, sort of like a breakfast table, and we, he gave me this invoice in, uh, I guess it was green, pink, and uh, yellow copies, and uh, I had to sign it for zero dollars with my signature. He said, great, you know, here's some aerators, uh, i got to go. And he, he basically, you know, makes like a dart out the front door, doesn't stop at anybody else's house, gets in his van and just drives away. And later that night, I looked in the furnace room, and I have three balls of hydrogen peroxide. Uh, and I thought to myself, oh, this could be a problem. I've heard that this is not, um, you know, I've heard that, they, you know, apparently this can be used for nefarious purposes. Um, but I wasn't. I mean, I, I used it for quite legitimate purposes. But I knew that this was bad, that they saw that. So when they said to me on the street, why do you have three balls of hydrogen peroxide, I, I knew right there that it was because of that guy, that gas inspector. And I knew that, you know, from the phone call from, from, from Gary that had I been interrogated, yeah, I, that this was going to happen. So now do you remember then what kind of interrogation they gave you, like what they said to you, what they were asking? Right. Well, you... You would expect that there would be a whole bunch of questions about my uh, conversation with Terry about this former neoconservative politician. In fact, there were very few questions about him. Uh, this was obviously a training exercise. The, the first thing that happened was um, when I got in the van is they, once all the other officers entered the van, um, they had me sit down at a fold-down table, and there was a, it was a corrugated uh, steel or aluminum floor, with like a half inch gaps between one inch wide corrugation groove or um, what do we call it, like hills. And 
then there was a torture chair in the back of the van that was actually facing forward. It was near the front of the van facing forward. But, you know, between the divider, between the front and the back, there was um, three bright spotlights that were pulled out later. Anyway, they had to sit down at this uh, table, and they did medical questionnaire, and they asked me about any, you know, illnesses I had, any medications. And then they said, okay, now spread your, your hands out and your fingers wide. So I spread my fingers wide, and then the RCMP officer pulled out a uh, nail-pulling device. This is called showing the tools of torture. I later researched this, and this is classic in a, in a torture, uh, is that you want to, right off the bat, terrify the person. Uh, so he pulled out a single hole puncher, and I said, is that a single hole puncher? And he said, yeah, but it's been modified. And sure enough, the flange was removed that normally separates the paper, and so it's easier to get a fingernail in there. And he proceeded to examine each one of my ten fingers and have the other officers asking, so can you pull that one, can you pull that one? And he sort of touch it to my finger, and, ah, I don't know, it's a little short. And then he'd go to the next one. And one by one, each time they would do this, they'd look up at my face to see how terrified I was. Um, and then, uh, they after that little event, uh, they had me strip my fingers even wider, and then they took out a knife. And uh, first it was the Canadian guy going tap, 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 between all my fingers, and going as fast as he could. And then the JTF American guy did it, and he was fast. He was faster than the Canadian. Obviously, he had more practice. And he was like, tap, 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 and he went through all my fingers. And it was just, you know, terrifying. And and then they had me sit down at the torture chair, which was um, like something out of a movie. It had like four-and-a-half-inch diameter tubing uh, that made up the frame at the back, on each side of the back, and it was aluminum tubing. And there was black seatbelt material, three-and-a-half-inch wide black seatbelt material woven between the frame points. And there, there was design, and the frame points went along the armrests as well. There was large diameter tubing along the armrests with the seatbelt webbing as well. And also with leg rests, same deal. So everywhere my body touched the chair, I was being supported by a, 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 this black seatbelt material, which meant that there was no way I was going to get bruised. Uh, which causes evidence. And then I was leg cuffed. I was handcuffed. Then this is the RCMP guy who did this. And then he put a syringe in my left inner inside arm, in the middle there, opposite the elbow. And I said, is that sodium pentothal? And he said, what, have you had sodium pentothal before? I said, no. So why do you think it's sodium pentothal? I said, well, I don't know. It fits. And uh, anyway, so the fact that he said that, suggested to me there probably was sodium pentothal. Certainly the effects that I later researched matched what I felt then, which once he had taped down that syringe and he, he pushed it in, like just a little bit, I felt like I drank four beers in about 30 seconds. I was drunk. Um, and then, once I was in the drunk phase, he then proceeded to put uh, a shocking cuff on my upper right arm. And that had a remote control on it. It felt like a blood pressure cuff but it had wires in it. You could feel the thick wires. And, and then it went to a remote control. And I said, what's that for? And he said, well, let's make sure you tell the truth. And sure enough, they used that. And had a variable strength uh, current so that I would be, you know, they could modulate how much pain I experienced. And then he taped my eyelids open with medical tape. And I'd never seen, you know, a person so talented. I mean, he did that like a pro. Like, and at one point, one my upper left actually hurt. I said, well, that hurts. Oh, I'll fix that. And he pulled it off and put it back on within five seconds. 
I mean, this guy had been taping eyelids for a long time. And then they put three bright floodlights uh, on my face that came out of the ceiling. And then the interrogation started. Are you a member of Hezbollah? Uh, no. You know, I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, okay? Uh, but anyway, uh, no. And then, well, have you ever been a member of Hezbollah? No. Do you know anybody who's ever been a member of Hezbollah? No. Have you ever spoken to anybody in Hezbollah? No. And then about Hamas. Are you a member of Hamas? No, I'm not a member of Hamas. Have you ever known anybody? And so for each question, for each terrorist group, there would be five or six questions slightly differently about whether or not I had been a member. And so we went through all of these Arabic names, most of which I'd never heard of before. Um, and this is, again, reinforcing that this had to be a training exercise because why would they be interrogating, why would they be asking me these questions, right? It doesn't fit. But it does fit if you consider that the person doing the training, the Joint Task Force guy, runs Guantanamo Bay. And who do they have at Guantanamo Bay? Well, mostly Arabics, people who speak Arabic. So it does fit in that sense. Um, and it, there, there were a few interesting ones. They say, are you a member of PETA? I said, is that the, what, PETA? And these animal rights? Oh, you mean the people for the ethical treatment of animals? Yeah, that's the one. Uh, no. And then I thought to myself, you know, I didn't know that was a terrorist group. <laughs> and, and then, are you a member of the White Panthers? I said, White Panthers? I thought it was Black Panthers. No, no, there's White Panthers now. Uh, no, no, I'm not a member of the White Panthers. And then, of course, there'd be five questions about that as well. Um, so after going through all of this, uh, then the American proceeded to teach the Canadian no-mark torture. So um, these are things to do to somebody to torture them that won't leave marks. And uh, uh, the one was an eyeball flick where he asked me to close my eye, actually not close both eyelids, but close just one so that he wanted me still to be able to see him. And then with the one that was closed, he'd take his finger and embrace it off his thumb and go to give a flick and have that finger collide with my eyeball, the shuttered eyeball, and pushes the eyeball back into the eye socket and causes extreme pain. And then he would have, he showed the Canadian to do it and the Canadian did it. Um, and I sort of screamed, you know, ah, you know, don't do that out. And um, then another one was uh, grinding um, the joints of the, uh, well, okay, I, I won't go into all that, that. It's just really gross. And But so after doing the teaching of the coercive interrogation uh, techniques, um, then it moved on to the mind control. And uh, that's where things got really, really strange. Um, basically, for those people who who don't understand um, this whole idea of dissociation, this dissociation state is like um, no, no. Uh, it, it's like chopping a, a round of wood when you go camping, and the first time you chop the wood, the round of wood, it's really, really hard to chop it in half. It takes a lot of effort. A wedge is, you know, often used, but once you have the half piece and you want to chop that in half, it's much easier to split. And once you have a quarter piece, to chop that in half, oh, it's much easier to split. Well, it's the same thing with dissociation. And this is why they choose people, because uh, I've talked to half a dozen MKUltra victims like myself um, in the last year who have approached me, and we all have one thing in common. Uh, we all have had psychological traumas in our childhood that caused, like, severe psychological traumas that caused us to dissociate. And 
that means that we have been preconditioned to split or dissociate fairly easily under torture. So it only took them about 15 minutes of continuous torture before I dissociated, whereas a person who's never been dissociated before might take many, many hours, many, many torture sessions over days of many, many hours until they finally dissociate. So that's why they choose people who have had severe psychological traumas. Um, anyway, they asked me this question, what is your Arabic name? Now, of course, I don't have an Arabic name, but it's a nonsensical question. And so I'd say, uh, well, I don't have an Arabic name, and zzz, I get a shock. And then they ask the question again, what is your Arabic name? And it's, uh, Matthew? Zzz, right. And they said, no, Matthew, you know, your name is uh, Mohash in Arabic. I said, okay, what is your Arabic name? And I'd say, uh, Mohash. Nothing. Okay, good. Uh, Matthew, what's your, what's your, your Arabic name? I'd say, Mohash. Zzz, right. So I, I, but I said, look, I told you the name. They said, no, we want your other Arabic name. And, I, and then I, I don't have another one. And so what was happening was I was getting intermittent or random electric shocks. And so I was continuously given the same question, not like 10, 20, 30 times, but over 100, maybe 200 times uh, I was asked this question. And one out of every two or three times I would get a shock, no matter what my answer was, even if it was a no answer, it was my English name, it was the one in Arabic they told me my name translated to, or I made something up, didn't matter. One out of three times, approximately, random electric shocks. And what happens to the brain, to the mind, when you are put into a situation that's essentially sadistic, it's sadistic, it's, it's, there, someone is torturing you and they just want you to have pain and not be able to predict it. You don't know when the pain's coming, it just comes. It, it causes you to like give up and you withdraw and you withdraw and you withdraw and your dominant personality shuts down and to protect itself this is a normal human response and what's left is this childlike presence which is this childlike presence is the ideal state uh, because it means they can do stuff to you now like hypnotize you because I remember the American JTF officer saying to the Canadian JTF2 officer See the way he is right now? He's flickering against his uh, eyelid taping consistently like that? That's one of the signs. And the other sign, watch this, and he puts his hand between the floodlights in my face, moves it quickly, so a shadow goes quickly over my face, and I cringe in the chair in the restraints. I cringe away. He said, that's another sign. But you've got to be careful. They go into shock really easy at this point. And Matthew, slow down your breathing. Don't go into shock. Slow down your breathing. So I slow down my breathing. And so I've had like 15 minutes of continuous torture. Okay, and then he pulls out this um, little uh, cube. It was uh, uh, had a hologram inside, and the hologram was lit by three pulsating different color LEDs, something like red, green, yellow, or something. And what this thing had in it was a Apollo 13 spacecraft on the moon. In the bottom left part of the cube, the upper right was a, a American eagle in a tree. And as the colors pulsated to a slightly different color, the hologram would animate, and the Air, the uh, Apollo 13 spacecraft would lift off the moon and the, the eagle would lift off the tree. It was beautiful. I mean, it was, you know, really, really pretty. And I was really, um, I was dissociated at that point. I was like a child. And I said, that's beautiful. Yeah, wow, that's really pretty. Can I touch it? And so he let me touch it. And he said, look, Matthew. So I was mesmerized. That's the definition of, of the guy named Mesmer, you know, created hypnosis. And uh, I was mesmerized. And he said, Matthew, listen, I want you... Now, what you're going to do is you're going to do everything I tell you to do, 
and I'm going to tell you to say things, and you're going to say them exactly. And I want you to say, yes, you understand, and you're going to do that. I said, okay, yes, I understand. I'm going to do that. And then he proceeded to give me post-hypnotic suggestions to repeat. And the first one was, if I ever find a gun in my jacket pocket, I will immediately go to the first closet in my house. And before getting into the closet, I will turn the safety off on the handgun. And then he pulled out his all-chrome handgun to show me how to take a safety off. And the two regular Canadian forces, the driver and the radio or comms guy, uh, went, woo, you know, because big fancy, you know, chrome gun. And uh, he said, well, it's not going to look like this one. And then Burley, the RCMP officer, pulls out his Glock 9mm black gun and passes it over here. You know, try mine, use mine. And he says, careful, it's loaded. And the American, <laughs> goes, yeah, I know that. <laughs> he always treats the RCMP guy pretty bad. But anyway, uh, so he then shows me, well, I'm, you know, cuffed, of course, uh, how to turn the safety off on the handgun. And so we get back to this, this the post of non-suggestion. When I find a gun in my jacket pocket, I will immediately go to the closest closet in my house. Before getting in the closet, I will turn the safety off on the handgun. Then I will step in the closet, I will close the door, and I will put the gun barrel to my head and pull the trigger in one smooth action, no delay. And I had to repeat this a dozen times. And what happens is, well, okay, so after repeating that a dozen times, then I had to repeat following. I will never remember this program until I find a gun in my jacket pocket. And I, I repeat again, I will never remember this program until I find a gun in my jacket pocket. And I repeat that about five or ten times. And what that does now, the subconscious is left with an assertion that I'm going to do the following behavior in, in, under these circumstances in the future. But it's also left with the suggestion that I'm not going to remember this suggestion unless the trigger is present. So what's, what's tricky about that is now when you come out of that dissociative state that you've been put into through torture, you have, first of all, complete amnesia from anywhere from months to years, depending on how severe the trauma was. And you are walking around with a program in your head that can be triggered at any time. And you will not be able to remember that trigger. Uh, it, only your subconscious mind knows about it until the trigger is present and then suddenly you remember. And by luck and you know divine intervention, uh, that never happened. I never found a gun in my jacket pocket before I remembered the suggestion because eventually you do remember this stuff if you live long enough. It took me four years and five months after that November 2005 event before I remembered the mind control part. I mean, within a month I remembered being tortured by military guys in an, you know, an interrogation in a van. But it took four years and five months to remember the part that happened while I was dissociated, the mind control training. So what was it that, that made you remember? Was there something that occurred? or? Um, what happened was I had undertaken to cure myself. I mean, first of all, I'm off work on long-term disability, um, and... I am a fighter, you know, and I, um, I immediately started doing uh, therapy with a, uh, someone, a psychotherapist who had sort of specialized in psychological trauma. Also, I found uh, the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, the psychological trauma unit, and I met with the, the chairman of that sort of department, 
and the lead doctor, and he put me on to one of his doctors who then took me on. He was a young doctor, and this is like an interesting case, and he took me on. And for years, five years in total, I saw this guy for psychological trauma uh, treatment, and he was dedicated. And this is a guy uh, who has moved outside of Toronto after making a big impact here, uh, and he lives out in the country near um, a small city not too far away that has a Canadian Air Force base nearby. And so him, he's now the, the lead of the Department of Psychiatrists that just most of their work is treating uh, vets of the Afghan war who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Anyway, he was extremely dedicated, and he actually produced a letter for me which is in the preface of my book. And this letter states that he... Uh, well, I'll tell you, it says right here, this is to certify that I've known uh, um, Malcolm Pauley since the spring of 2006, and I've been meeting with him regularly in psychiatric follow-up uh, since that time. He initially presented with symptoms consistent with PTSD associated with vivid memories of having been tortured by government anti-terrorist forces in a van on or about November 26, 2005. At that point, you know, a couple of days off. Since his initial presentation, he has had trials of three different antipsychotic medications due to my concerns that these memories might be false. This includes a trial with clozapine, well known to be the an antipsychotic with superior efficacy. He retains full memory and certainty of the events in question despite these trials. He has not been diagnosed with a delusional disorder. He has never presented with suicidal ideations, intentions, or plans. I insisted on that last paragraph. Um, so, the point about this letter is, I, the, this, this lead doctor of the psychological trauma unit was from South America, and Dr. Alex uh, Tarnopolsky, and he said to me, Matthew, I know a thing or two about torture. And he said, no one's going to believe your story until you prove that you're not delusional. You've got to take these drugs. And so, I agreed. And so over five years, I went on, on these six-month drug trials, that, and, and these were like debilitating drugs I, for people. I feel sorry for people who have to take these drugs. But I did it because I wanted to prove that, that I'm not delusional, that this is true, this happened. And sure enough, after five years, I got that letter, which is the best you can get. They can't say that, you know, what you're purporting is true, but because they're doctors, what they can say is that, you know, you have been tested thoroughly, and you do not have a delusional illness. Nothing was found. So either I'm making things up because I've got nothing better to do, which would be completely outrageous because I'm a computer expert. I really love my work, and I make a lot of money doing it. Um, but I'm actually unable to work right now from post-traumatic stress disorder because after all that treatment, the activities did not stop with that 2005 event. They kept going. In 2008... Uh, I started uh, writing my book. I decided as a responsible citizen, I, I need to tell everybody about what was done to me. And I sent the book unencrypted on the Internet to my editor. And within about two weeks, I was picked up. And I was pulled into a van. And uh, it was uh, forced ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock. And uh, I was picked up in broad daylight. And it was like, you know, 6 o'clock in the evening on about Q3 of 2007. And it was a really interesting, tricky way they did it. I mean, it was, I've never seen, it was like a movie. I mean, I'm walking down um, King Street. I'm walking east 
on the north side. The van is on my right. I'm near the curb, maybe five feet from the curb. It's on my right, about a quarter block ahead. I'm getting nervous. I'm thinking to myself, don't be paranoid. You can't run away just because you see van. And as I'm getting closer, I notice there's a driver and there's a passenger. And I notice there's another guy in a suit, because I'm in a suit, and, and another guy in a suit walking towards me. So he's walking uh, westbound, and he's to my left, and he, he alters his path, so he's like going to collide with me. So I sort of move towards the van more, and I'm getting closer to the van, and then he does it again. And now I'm within two feet of the van, and just as I pass the passenger side uh, window, which is unrolled, I hear, Matthew. And I stop, and I turn, and I look, and I see the outline. And it's the short blonde hair, and I hear the voice, and I know it's him. It's Mitch. And I saw the sun setting through the windshield, like time literally slowed down. And I saw the smearing and dust on the windshield of the setting sun that was illuminating it. And then I heard a click, and before I could even turn, it was the click of a side door. I was put in a headlock, and I had an inhalant-soaked rag held over my mouth and nose. And I started smelling fumes. I'm trying to resist, and I'm being pulled back in this van, and I'm out in two seconds flat. And I wake in this van. I'm in a low gurney, about a foot off the bottom of the van. I'm belted in, and I have a ball gag in my mouth. And I'm being told by Mitch and the other guy, the RCP officer, is there, too. That's the only two people. Matthew, you've been a bad boy. You've been talking to people. And I'm going, mm -hmm. no, 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 I'm trying to say no. And he's going, oh, don't lie to me, Matthew. We know you've been talking to lots of people. We warned you. We warned you you weren't supposed to talk. And then the RCMP guy puts this headset with metal ends on my temples. I can still feel the, remember the cold on my temples. And uh, Mitch then has this remote control, and he, and he says, clear. And then he flips the switch. And it was this maybe eighth of a second of buzzing, loud buzzing, eighth of a second, and then black. And then I'm, I'm feeling my arm being punched. So it's punching me in the arm, in my shoulder, and saying, Matthew, wake up, wake up, Matthew, wake up, wake up. And I'm sitting on the bench in this van. I don't know how I got there. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know who the other guy is. I, I don't know where I am. What's going on? How did I get here? And he says, listen, do you know where you are? I said, well, I'm in a van. Good, good. This is the Mitch... And he's saying, so uh, do you know where you're going? He says, um, uh, home. He says, good, good. And then the, the Canadian jumps in and says, okay, so where's your home? And I said, 400 Walmart Road. And he put his head in his hands, and he slowly started shaking his hands, his, his head back and forth. He's despondent. And then Mitch turns to me and says, no, 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 Matthew, no, that's not your home. Your home is north of Eglinton, just two or three blocks, on the young subway north. You know? You remember now? I said, yeah, yeah, I remember. I hadn't lived... 400 Walmart Road for six years. That's how bad the ECT, the electroshock was. They had wiped my, my, my destroyed so much uh, my memory that I didn't even know where I lived. And it did stop my book. Uh, I, they, they let me out and they told me to go home and they, but, but he told me not to ever talk about what happened in this van. And I didn't know. I said, well, what happened? You know, I, did, I had no memory of how I got in the van or whatever. Anyway, so that stopped my, van, my book for a few years and made my, my programming a little bit more challenging uh, because I had lost, you know, only billions of brain cells. Um, that was the 2007 event. And then the 2008 event, 
I'm not going to detail because when I last detailed, I tried to talk about it on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie, uh, the line, my internet went down immediately. Uh, so, therefore, I conclude it's probably not a good idea for me to talk about it. I will, however, if people are curious about what happened in 2008, which was my test, I will direct you to my interview with Sean Stone, and you can get there by just Googling three words, Stone, Pauly, my last name, P-A-U-L-Y, M-K-Ultra. So, Stone, Pauly, M-K-Ultra, first hit will be that interview with Sean Stone. By the way, he's the son of Oliver Stone. He's a filmmaker. He's an actor. It's a very professional uh, interview. And if you go to 27 minutes and 45 seconds, you will get to the point where I explain what happened in 2008. Uh, now, I will uh, take a breath here and let you um, go ahead and, and, and <laughs> ask any questions. <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is... Um, are you still, as they call a sleeper, or are you still under some sort of mind control? Can they trigger you at this time now? And does that worry you? I mean, I guess, of course, it would. But also, how has this affected your life uh, with your family, your job? How do they react to these happenings, to these events? So, you know, when you got, uh, you know, uh, taken in the truck and, and these things, and you come back a different person, of course, um, has it changed how you, how you deal with your day-to-day -day life? Um, <coughs> yes, I mean, um, I'm trying to answer these questions in order. Um, am I still a sleeper? Well, that's a, a good question. Um, the, what I have found through trial and error is that uh, these memories of the, the, just the torture trauma dissociate event, uh, dissociative events where I'm hypnotized, which, by the way, have continued right into 2014 and 2015. I've had three home invasions in 2015. I've gone through three burglar alarm systems. I spent $10,000 on security, and it's like nothing. You know, it, it, these when you have professionals, that that's what they do for a living. You know, and they're you know they're trained by the government. You know, you know, it doesn't matter what your consumer grade equipment is. It's you know, it's all penetrable. But anyway, um, it it affects. Um, am I still a sleeper? So there, there's a period of time afterwards before you remember stuff. So there's a there's there's a limited window of vulnerability, where you haven't remembered everything yet. Because um, if you imagine uh, your, yourself moving in time, this is very actually uh, interesting. So you're moving in time, and it turns out your memory is lagging behind about six months or three months. So, you, you know, that's a very, very dangerous situation. Um, not all the time, but for certain missing time events where suddenly a day will just disappear. Like the 2008 event when I went to work the next morning after this big event, uh, my, I sat down at my workstation at this pod. We had a really Silicon Valley kind of software shop. And I sat down. I'm sitting right beside my team leader, and he says to me, Matthew, if you're going to be away for a day, at least send me a bloody email. And I, I said, oh, oh, okay. I had no memory of being away for a day. As far as I knew, the previous day I was at work programming. I had missing time. And that's why I call my book The Murder of Time. 
making and unmasking a sleeper. Because that's the primary experience of this, is that you, you have missing time. And then some number of months or years later, you will remember what happened, depending on the severity of the trauma. So that 2008 event took me four years and, no, three years and a half, 3.5 years, to start having flashbacks to it. And another two years before I had full recall. Uh, so it means that in terms of impact on my, uh, am I still a sleeper? Well, I had continued to do this therapy uh, stuff and to, 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 to continuously working on recalling everything. And, and, and then what I'm doing, obviously, is I'm taking huge precautions in my life um, to not let myself be vulnerable to being taken. Um, so I don't travel on the highways. Um, and I, uh, like, I just keep it to the local streets. I really avoid the highways. I mean, if I have to, I will, but I try and avoid it. Uh, I have tape recorders at all times. I have, uh, car cams. I have body cams. I, I have, um, uh, serious security going on at the home. Um, and I, uh, am constantly documenting anything that comes up in terms of, uh, if I recall anything, I document it and put it into a book. So the first book, the Murder of Time is essentially like uh, a dated series of events of, of a first in the first person. What it's like to go through to be an experimental subject of MK Ultra mind control research, which um, is quite interesting. And then uh, uh, I've had people say, "Well, when a Canadian academic looked at the book before it was published. He said you must explain before you tell your story the context, the societal, you know, with the power dynamics." So there's a I've, I've put on each side of the body of the book uh, more of a high level, what, is the, what does this really mean, this story? You know, how does this fit into what's going on in the world? But anyway, um, back to your, your, your question. So the present time, my last uh, event was in uh, October, November of 2015. Uh, it was a home invasion, um, and I've documented uh, everything that happened. And what's, what's changed is instead of outdoor activities, uh, in 2015, it's been all uh, indoor activities, which has been uh, bad because it's now bringing it into my home. My wife is obviously terrorized that all this violence has occurred in our house. Um, and so anyway, um, I'm trying to... Uh, not let the, uh, reduce the opportunity for my, uh, access to me. What I really would like, of course, is for my own government to protect me. Uh, and I've made them aware. I've written to the Prime Minister. I've written to, um, uh, you know, the, the media organization, the CDC. And I've said, look, this is a matter of human rights. This is a matter of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, which is like your Bill of Rights down there. And we can't have Cold War agreements that allow human experimentation in mind control and the testing of chemical, radiological, and biological weapons on Canadian civilians. This is like antiquated, old-style, not acceptable thinking. We can't do this anymore. And I need protection. And I'm still waiting uh, for them to, to really respond. I shouldn't say that... There, there's been a little bit of response. There has been some counter, what I call interference, being run by our own spy agency. Um, and they've just been, you know, following around um, to, to try and prevent me from being taken. Uh, but they're not 24-7. They're just, when they perceive the risk is highest, they'll, they'll, they'll follow me, uh, which is good. 
Um, but uh, still, I need to, I need more than that. So, uh, am I still a sleeper? Well, no, because the all of the stuff that they've done to me, I've documented. And once you bring into the conscious mind these mind control programs, they're no longer they're no longer effective, right? Because now that you know what the triggers are, your conscious mind picks up the trigger, not your subconscious mind. And your conscious mind goes, oh, my God, that's the trigger. Well, I'm going to be, you know, walk away from this situation. I don't want to you know, have anything to do with, you know, that triggering material. Uh, so um, essentially it's like deprogramming uh, the individual. And uh, you can, there's even self-hypnosis involved as well. So I don't know if I've addressed that question of am I still a sleeper. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And just in summary, what do you think the implications? Like, how? What's the point of what they're doing? Like, what are they? What are they achieving from the mind control of people such as yourself? Well, um, I think that's fairly uh, evident in um, the original goals of the program uh, were to not only develop a truth serum, but to uh, develop ways of making people do things against their will, but not only against their will, of course, but against their self-interest and even survival. Well, what could that possibly be useful for? Well, if you want to have a, people think that there's a terror event, like a mass shooting, and if you can get somebody to hang around with a gun, wearing fatigues and bulletproof vest after this mass shooting, and be kind of all confused and have no memory of the event and have some physical evidence that links them to the crime. That's very convenient because now you can, can you can sell to the public and the media will sell to the public this false flag terror event. The public gets frightened. It's called like fear porn and it gets played over and over and over on, on all the stations. Everyone's terrified. The terrorists are out to get us. Um, and the agenda is to cause people to be more willing to give up their, their constitutional rights, their rights to uh, freedom from arbitrary search and seizure, uh, privacy, um, other things, and also to terrorize the public so they'll be more willing to support wars abroad to get the terrorists, which are usually, uh, in fact, bogus. Uh, these are really about the organizations, if you look to who funded those organizations in the first place, you come full circle. Uh, and really it's about oil, opium, and uh, geopolitical interests, and people making money on war. The same people who own much of the media, like this, you have a huge concentration of ownership in the U.S., some of those same families also own defense contractor stock. And uh, so, you know, you've got a closed loop. And the, the, the public, um, I think, should be looking very, very closely at these uh, terror events and asking, has that person been tested for scopolamine? Because most people don't, are not aware, because we're never, ever taught this, uh, that there's even a substance that could do this. Um, I just want to just, just give you this one thing here, that uh, Dr. Camilo Arib head of the toxicology unit of San Jose University Hospital says, scopolamine can turn a person into a robot. I can give you, uh, I can give you a gun and tell you to go kill someone and you will do it. Okay? This is an expert in, on this topic. And I can, I can tell you 
that having been drugged with six times or five times, that it completely wipes free will and you become a slave. And that ability to turn people into slaves, to make them do things against their self-interest, is extremely dangerous to our democracies because it gives the power to the people who have that technology to create false flag terror events, assassinations, hate crimes. Uh, Dylan Roof, you know, shot those black people. He was a white guy, so it looks like a hate crime. Terrorizes the public. Well, look a little deeper into his, his past, and you'll find that he was not a, he's not a racist until the last two months. And someone got to him and did something to him. And uh, so uh, if we look at even the San Bernardino, we, we know there was three uh, Caucasian men, all black, with bulletproof vests and gas masks, who had uh, balaclavas on, uh, and they had automatic weapons and they were shooting. And this is by eyewitnesses at the scene. And people were dropping to the ground. Uh, but then you have this patsy sort of situation with this young uh, Islam couple and, you know, tweeting or with the Facebook uh, post or something that there was a jihad thing. This is what's setting up a false flag to make it look like there's a real terrorist event going on and we should go and get the terrorists over in, uh, you know, in uh, the Middle East or wherever, Europe, wherever it's going on. And it's really sad that the media plays it, it over and over and over. People are terrorized and they're propagandized into believing that this is reality. And it's, it's, it's a tragedy to our democracies. And it's happened up here in Canada as well. In 2014, we had a, uh, a shooter in Ottawa that was, again, a total false flag event. And they do it with scopalamine, and they do it with the, this MKUltra Monarch mind control programming, which is torture, trauma, dissociation, and then hypnosis. And then at showtime, they give the scopalamine. Well, um, I have to say thank you very much for taking the time. Um, uh, the, well, thank you, Mark. The subject was MKUltra Mind Control, the book, Murder of Time, and our guest, Matthew Pauly. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. <laughs>